This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Listen to My Life of Crime ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe today. There's no such thing as a perfect family, no matter what you see on social media or in that annual holiday card you receive in the mail. Even the closest families have problems. We fight, make up, then fight and make up. There's always the hope of reconciliation, a happy ending, because we're family. So what could cause a person to destroy the people he seemingly loves the most? I'm Erin Moriarty, and this is Season 4 of My Life of Crime. I've spent the last three decades studying crimes and the people who commit them, and nothing is more personal than when one family member kills another. You're about to hear one of the more interesting cases I've come across, Twisted Twins. Who killed Heather DeWilde? It's the case of two Colorado brothers, two identical twin brothers, David and Daniel DeWild, who thought they could get away with murder. And you know what? They almost did. Everyone is fascinated by twins, but I have a personal interest. You might not know this about me, but I'm a fraternal twin. Fraternal twins are two separate eggs that happen to form at the same time, so their DNA profiles are no more alike than other siblings. But identical twins come from one egg and share the same DNA. Still, as you're about to hear, when it comes to something as serious as murder, even the bond of identical twins will be put to the test. Daniel and David DeWild were identical twin brothers who grew up, did basically everything together. They lived together. They worked at the same location. 
Uh, they based, basically ate the same food. They did everything together. Daniel and David were as close as two brothers could be, born just a minute and a half apart. They were almost one person. So when Daniel's marriage to his wife, Heather, fell apart, David felt his pain. And when Heather, Daniel's wife, moved out of the house with their two small kids, David moved in. The house was in the small town of Edgewater, Colorado, just 10 minutes from the city of Denver. Heather would still occasionally come by with the kids, even though her own dad, Dave Springer, who happened to be a retired Denver cop, worried every time she did. I told her not to go there, and I didn't think she would, but she did. The date was July 24, 2003. Heather, 30 years old, dropped by the house around noon to sign a check and pick up insurance cards for their children. Heather's mother, Carol Springer, estimates her visit to Daniel's house should have taken about two hours. But by 3 p.m., Heather still hadn't returned. Carol called Daniel and asked him where Heather had gone. He told me that she went shopping. I says, well, that's not true. That's what I told him. I says, no, that's not true. We knew immediately that was a lie. Why? Because she, before she left the house, she didn't take any money with her or a credit card. And he said she went shopping? Right. How much sense did that make to you? Well, it didn't make any sense. Carol, with a sinking feeling, went to Daniel's house to pick up her grandchildren. And what was going through your mind at that point? Let me get the kids and be gone. I wanted to get out of there. The children, just three and five years old, couldn't say where their mother had gone. Heather's dad, Dave Springer, didn't want to waste time and called the local police to do a preliminary search of Daniel's house. But um, they, they did their search, didn't find anything. And by this time, it's 9.30 at night. So now I know we got a problem. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, they killed her at this point. When you say they killed her? Well, whoever was there, he, and, and if anyone else was there, they'd have been involved. I didn't know who was in the house. Heather had simply vanished along with her car. Heather's dad believed that Daniel was behind her disappearance. But wouldn't the children have seen something? And where was Heather's car? Dave Springer didn't know for sure that anyone else was in the house. But he did know how close Daniel was to his twin brother, David. And the timing was very suspicious. Heather's divorce would have become final in just two days. At the time, she was living with her parents and had been given custody of their two children, Hannah and Jacob. On top of that, Daniel had to pay her child support. He was very angry over that because he thought he was going to lose his home. He couldn't pay all his bills. Daniel's twin David and his girlfriend, Roseanne, had moved into Daniel's house to help him with the mortgage and house payments. But it wasn't enough. Meanwhile, Daniel kept hoping to win Heather back. Two days before Heather's disappearance, Daniel had shown up at her parents' house to try one last time. And according to Heather's dad, it didn't go well. Yeah, he brought a card and flowers and tried to get her to 
reconsider the divorce. And um, when she didn't, he left there in a state of anger and burned his rubber tires, leaving the parking place out in front of the house and screamed away down the street. So, you know, he, he was definitely angry again. So did something happen to Heather during her visit to Daniel's house? Because his story that Heather went shopping didn't make any sense to Carol and Dave Springer. The next day, July 25th, 2003, a couple of Denver cops went to the house. When Daniel opened the door, Detective Mark Kreider asked Daniel if he could ask him some questions about his still-missing wife. Quickly into our conversation, he had mentioned that he had had an attorney, which I thought was a little odd. And his attorney told him that he shouldn't talk to the police. What lights in my mind is, why do you have an attorney? This is a missing person. We're trying to help find your wife. Just then, Daniel's twin brother, David, pulled into the driveway. The other police officer, Sergeant Hamilton, tried to question him, but Daniel stopped it. And he starts yelling for David, come inside the house. Yelling? A loud voice. And David didn't respond to him, and then he definitely started yelling. David, get in the house. Come on, don't talk to him. Let's go. David's still talking with Sergeant Hamilton. At one point, Dan gets pretty upset and actually walks over as if to grab David and bring him into the house. I'm thinking now we don't have a missing person. We have a murder. And what was your impressions from seeing the two? What did you have, like, who was the more dominant? Did you get a sense of who was kind of the more dominant twin? Yes, just, just from that brief um, encounter, it was my opinion that Dan was the more dominant of the two because, again, he's yelling and basically ordering his brother not to talk with Sergeant Hamilton. And not only were the twin brothers not cooperating with investigators, but they also weren't out looking for Heather. That was suspicious in itself. Detective Kreider talked with neighbors, but no one remembered seeing Heather at Daniel's house or her leaving the house the day before, which meant Daniel DeWild and whoever else was at home at the time may have been the last people to see Heather alive. And Daniel wasn't talking, or so Detective Kreider thought, until out of the blue, Daniel called. I was glad he called. Um, but within a few minutes of that conversation, I felt it was a self-serving call that he wanted to call to uh, make it appear that he was cooperating. How would you describe? Tell me why you thought that. Well, I thought that because um, several times during the conversation, he mentioned um, that his lawyer had told him not to talk to the police and he really shouldn't be talking to the police. Um, Dan was fine talking about... Um, matters unrelated to where Heather was at the time of her disappearance. Um, once, I, I tried to get a timeline from him several times. What time did she come over? What was she like? What was she doing? Um, and he veered away from those questions. Detective Kreider kept thinking if he could only just get Daniel's brother alone, he might get some answers. I felt like David had some information that his brother did not want him to share with us. So I really wanted to talk with David. But it seemed almost impossible to break through that twin bond. 
About a week after Heather was last seen, investigators obtained a search warrant for Daniel's house. Was there any sign of a, a murder weapon in the house? No, there was not. Any blood? No, there was not. Any sign that Heather had been in there or been killed in there? No, there was no sign of that at all. No evidence, no answers, no clues, nothing, until Detective Kreider asked Daniel's twin, David, a seemingly innocent question. And David had asked him what he was doing today, and he said he was taking his Suburban up to his cousin's uh, or his cousin's uh, lot up in Henderson, Colorado, which is about 10, 15 miles out of Denver. And why did that concern you? Well, again, why are you taking your car up there? He told me it needed some mechanical repairs. Yet I know that the entire DeWild family are mechanics. So why are you going to take it to Henderson, Colorado? Detective Kreider was convinced that David knew something. So he tried to press David a little more about Heather's disappearance. But did he tell you anything? At one point, he told me that he was scared. And what did that say to you? Well, that again told me, okay, he's scared of one of two things. He's scared of going to prison for his involvement. We're scared of his brother. What was David scared of? What a strange thing to say when your sister-in-law is missing. Still, David allowed him to take a look at his Suburban and search the vehicle. When Deputy Sheriff Al Nelson of the Denver PD and his cadaver dogs searched the SUV, they got a hit. They hit on the rear end. I believe it would be the driver's side rear door area. And which, that's the uh, first thing that maybe Heather's body had been in there. Something had been in there, right. The dogs reacted to two separate areas of the Suburban, but it might not mean anything. The dogs could be sniffing out diapers or even a decomposing animal. But Detective Kreider, already suspicious, thought it was a reason to keep looking. The vehicle was very clean. The dog just alerted on this vehicle. Why is this vehicle in Henderson, Colorado? You know, you just, things start to begin stacking up. Blocks begin building. Detective Kreider confronted David the next day. He tried to get him to talk by claiming that investigators knew there had been a decomposing body in his suburban. We said, hey, there's a decomposing body in your vehicle. And he talked around things, he talked around things, and at one point we put it to him directly and said, did you kill Heather? His head's kind of down, he's a little emotional. He says he needs to talk to an attorney, and he walked into his house. Kreider later told me how frustrating it was. He now believed Heather was dead and that both brothers had killed her. And what convinced Kreider even more was that David suddenly married his longtime girlfriend, Roseanne, right after being confronted about a decomposing body in his car. Suddenly, you know, Dave says to you, let's get married. Doesn't that seem strange? It, um, at the time it didn't, really it didn't, because I'd been hounding him, and then Heather went missing, and it wasn't a happy time, so, you know, we didn't do that. And um, so I, I, I griped a lot, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, well, let's go get married then. So it didn't, it didn't seem strange at all to me. Roseanne, David's now wife, was reluctant to talk to us, but she loved her husband. It never occurred to you. He might be thinking, well, she won't be able to talk to the cops. She won't be able to testify against me if I marry her. 
No, I, I don't know the law. And then there's a devastating development. Heather's car was found at an apartment complex just five miles from Daniel's home, but no Heather. And weirdly, there was no trace of DNA in the vehicle, even Heather's. Similar to David's Suburban, it seemed as if Heather's car had been thoroughly and deliberately cleaned. It was as if Heather had literally disappeared into thin air. Investigators had nothing until a month later when a local dump truck operator, Curtis Johnson, was moving dirt along a Colorado highway just under 20 miles from Edgewater. Well, when I backdragged the dirt and pulled it up, put it up there, um, a smell came across that I've never smelt before. I've dealt a lot with dead animals. Uh, walked up the right-hand side of the bank. Uh, this is when I've seen the skull. And this is my biology class kicked in, and this was actually a body. It was Heather's body, wrapped in trash bags. Her hands and neck were bound with rope, but her body was so decomposed, her cause of death couldn't be determined. It was no longer a missing woman's case. It was a homicide. But who killed her? Someone killed her, disposed of her body, and left her vehicle miles away. But there was no evidence to tie her death to her husband, Daniel, or her brother-in-law, David. So the case went cold, ice cold. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Two years after Heather DeWild's death, it's now 2005, there's still few clues and no arrests. But Jefferson County's new district attorney, Scott Story, promised to reopen the case after hearing pleas from Heather's family. He's actually the one who told me about the case. He was convinced that both DeWild twins were behind Heather's murder, and he was determined to find the evidence. So when the case was presented to me, in other words, when I met uh, with the Springers, David and Carol, uh, you know, they just poured their hearts out about how frustrated they were, uh, how they yearned for justice for Heather, while their their uh, daughter, and then it, uh, it kind of touched me uh, to the point where uh, it became a mission to get that thing on track and solved and prosecuted. Then District Attorney's story had to know what had happened to Heather DeWild. So he created a task force and assigned investigator Russ Boatwright to the case part-time. What was it that drove you, drove all of you, to try to get this case solved? It, just at first blush, I think you knew what, what the case was. Um, and it just, it seemed solvable. It seemed like it was right there at your fingertips. I don't even know how many times we went back through things and double-checked things. And we had no DNA. We really had no physical evidence. 
Wright and his team spent the next four years slowly putting together their case. Four years reviewing hundreds of items of evidence and discreetly talking to folks affiliated with the DeWild twins so as not to alert them. There was a lot of loose ends in this case that we needed to tie up, so to speak. And uh, so uh, we needed to, we, we needed to uh, get the case to a point where we could prosecute the case. And then in 2009, six years after Heather's murder, Story assigned Russ Boatwright to the case full-time. It happened after two of Heather's sisters confronted him at a convention for families of murder victims and missing victims of crime. They came up to me, and they were very frustrated. You promised that this case would be solved, and nothing's really happening. So uh, I'll never forget driving back. Uh, I felt pretty humbled by that, and I thought, you know what, we can be doing more. And so when I got back, I, uh, I made a decision that was to take Russ Boatwright uh, out of a division and to dedicate him entirely, 24-7. This was his case, and that's all he's going to work on. Heather's case file eventually grew to 30,000 pages, a circumstantial case pointing to Daniel David and Roseanne DeWilde's involvement. But was it enough to bring charges? And then Boatwright stumbled upon a curious piece of evidence. This DVD is a copy of a videotape uh, that we recovered from the residents. A DVD that gave investigators some idea of how Heather was likely killed. It was a sex tape made by Heather and Daniel years earlier. What we end up seeing in this videotape um, are images of Daniel tying Heather up in a very similar manner to how she was found. And adding to that, there was another discovery made when investigators went through Daniel's home computer. Daniel had gone on a dating site during his separation from Heather. And Daniel listed himself as a widower before in the, Heather's body had been found? Correct, in the profile. What did that say? Well, that said, he probably knew he was a widower at that point. Even though her body had not been found right. yet. Boatwright figured it was time to go after a weak link. Because if David knew what his brother had done, his wife Roseanne probably did too. After all, she suddenly married him right after Heather's disappearance. I'll just, I'll leave it with what, what she had said to, to a number of different people, people that didn't exactly know each other, they didn't associate with each other. So these were statements that were made at different times to different people, um, specifically right after the marriage, which occurred the day after David was confronted on that front porch uh, back in 2003. Uh, she had made the statement, um, she had to marry him so she couldn't testify against him. And I really, I don't know what else that means other than what it sounds like it means. I mean, what would she be worried about? Right. I mean, why would she have to, why would she worry about having to testify against her right. husband? Why would you even make that statement about a marriage to begin with? And take a minute to think back to David's interactions with Detective Mark Kreider early on in the investigation. Daniel didn't want David talking to anyone, and none of the DeWilds, Daniel, David, or Roseanne, ever went looking for Heather or even seemed worried about Heather's disappearance. That was just so strange. Russ Boatwright couldn't let it go. He eventually brought the case to a grand jury 
and got an indictment. It took more than eight years. But in December 2011, Daniel, David, and Roseanne DeWild were arrested for Heather DeWild's murder. They couldn't make bail, so all three went to jail. But for how long? Prosecutor Robert Weiner knew the evidence against them was all circumstantial. We didn't know how she died. And, you know, the autopsy report didn't say how she died. You don't even know where she died? No. You don't know exactly who killed her? We didn't. You still have a pretty weak case. Yeah. I mean, you have enough to indict these three, but now you gotta, you gotta prove these three. Right, and that was kind of my, my thought is now the work begins. And that's when investigators decided to try to break that emotional chain that had tied those brothers together since birth. What would it take to turn these two men linked together against one another? Here's Russ Boatwright again. They worked at the same place, I think in high school, both of them, obviously interested in mechanics, and they both uh, worked at pizza places. Um, they both had done uh, work at Lafarge, which is a gravel pit out in Golden. They would go back and forth. They lived together, you know, virtually all their lives. Unless he could get one of the men to confess, there just wasn't enough solid evidence to win convictions. Here's more from Russ Boatwright. Um, Bob Weiner um, sent me an email, you know, get over to my office. Uh, so I met with him and he said he'd had a conversation with David's attorney. Uh, there'd been a crack in the veneer. We knew, I think, that, that David wanted to say something. Were you excited or cautiously optimistic? What were you feeling? I would say cautiously optimistic. With a trial looming for both David and his wife, he seemed to be wavering. Circumstantial or not, Daniel, David, and Roseanne DeWild were all facing life in prison. Then, nearly a decade after Heather DeWild was killed, David DeWild finally broke. And what a story he had to tell. This was no sudden act that resulted in Heather's death. According to David, his brother had been planning Heather's death meticulously for three months before she disappeared, after he learned he'd have to pay child support. David says Daniel killed his wife on July 24, 2003, and afterwards, David hit her body. This is Russ Boatwright again. And that's when I started to realize that this was actually a well-thought-out plan. But why would David go through with this and help his brother? I think David describes it as, I'm trying to talk him out of it most of the time, but he said when um, Daniel told him, look, I'm doing this with you or without you, he said at that point he made a decision to help his brother. He said he knew if his brother did this on his own, he would get caught. Here's the part of the story that really hit me in the gut. David didn't just tell investigators what the brothers did. He agreed to take them back to the scene of the crime, Daniel's garage, to show them how they did it. Watching the video of that moment is chilling. I'm Investigator Boatwright. Today's date is August 4th, 2012. Present is David DeWild. He's going to uh, walk through what occurred um, during the time that Heather was murdered. 
According to David, Heather and the kids arrived at Daniel's house around noon on July 24, 2003. As Daniel went to meet them, David says he tried to stop his brother. A quick warning here. The following details are very difficult to hear. And I, I stop him right when he's walking up, and I'm in his way, and I say, Dan, don't do this. But he was very calm. What it sounds like David is doing is asking Daniel not to go ahead with the plan. But he says Daniel calmly brushed him aside. And then, as the children played in the house, Heather followed her husband Daniel into the garage. The prosecution believes that Daniel lured her there with a promise to return that sex tape the couple had made. And my brother walks through, closes the door, grabs her by like both shoulders, throws her down hard, and she is just here like like pro hard, where she didn't know that was going to happen. And then she goes to get up like this. And she looks at me, and I look at her. At that moment, with Heather's eyes on him, David says he knew he could have stopped Heather's murder, but he didn't. She knew something was going to happen, was just about to happen, and kind of looked to him to say, you know, help me here. And he said, I didn't do anything. I didn't do a thing to help her. He takes a mallet off the counter, and it's, she's trying to get back up, boom, whacks her, drops. He tosses the hammer down, he takes his noose, puts it around her neck. There's no obvious emotion as David says what happened next. Daniel then hanged his own wife. I guess cinches it up comes over and pulls on the rope. David goes on with the story. As Heather's children remained elsewhere in the house, David says he drove Heather's car and abandoned it at a nearby apartment complex. By the time David returned, he says, Daniel had already placed his wife's body in the back of the Suburban, the same vehicle where cadaver dogs had alerted. I just... Just make sure she's not breathing or anything, you know, just I put my hand on her. That is what I remember. Okay. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The brother's plan was to hide Heather's body so she'd never be found. And that might have worked if David had made it to the pre-planned burial site. Instead, transmission problems with his Suburban forced him to hide her along that canyon road where Curtis Johnson later discovered her. 
The prosecution believed they finally knew how Heather had been killed. But could they trust David? I mean, David's lied for nine years. Um, He's a liar. He is a liar, and he's certainly capable of lying. Before prosecutors gave David a deal in return for his testimony, they had David take a lie detector test. He passed every part pertaining to Heather's death, but failed on other parts. He had some issues on some other questions, primarily the involvement of others. On the issue of Roseanne? Yes. Investigators say that David placed all the blame on his brother and himself. But where was Roseanne all this time? David had failed parts of the polygraph test when questioned about Roseanne's involvement. Whatever her involvement was, David didn't believe Roseanne deserved to be in jail. In David's mind, everything that had gone wrong led back to Daniel. But I think he felt he felt betrayed by Daniel in the end. He talked about it really had, had uh, destroyed his life. I don't think he felt that way before he was arrested. But sitting in jail for that period of time, I think, uh, drove some things home to him as far as his children and, uh, and what was going on. I know he was upset about Roseanne. Um, he didn't believe that Roseanne had done anything uh, culpable in the sense of being punished criminally for. Daniel had also hidden from David the life insurance policy he had on Heather. He wasn't aware of that. Um, that the, what? That Daniel was going to get a $250,000 life insurance policy. Daniel never told David that? No. Not until almost a month later. You can hear it in my voice. I didn't know about that life insurance policy until this moment with Boatwright. Was that the real reason David turned against Daniel? when he learned that Daniel had kept from him that sizable life insurance policy. And David talked about how that just kind of slipped out. And it was kind of like an oops moment for, uh, for Daniel when that happened, because David said he had no knowledge of that. But Daniel's defense attorney, Tom Ward, claims that David simply turned against his brother Daniel because he got a great plea deal. Instead of life, he got just 12 years. He was able to give a statement that completely pinned the entire murder on his brother, Dan, and at the same time completely exonerated his wife, Roseanne, whose case was dismissed. To be clear, Roseanne has always claimed she had nothing to do with Heather's death and knew nothing about what happened to Heather on the day she disappeared until after David confessed. The charges against her were eventually dropped due to lack of evidence. So David himself goes from looking at potentially serving life with no possibility of parole to a sentence of 12 years where he might only serve three or four and gets his wife off the hook. As they head to trial, prosecutors are all too aware that one of Heather's killers would get off lightly, but they need David's testimony to convict his twin brother, Daniel. In this situation, we, I guess, had agreed to make a deal with the devil's twin. Nine years after Heather DeWilde's murder, the trial of her estranged husband begins. David's wife, Roseanne DeWilde, will not go on trial. Her charges have been reduced and then dropped due to lack of evidence. David DeWilde took a plea deal to testify for the prosecution, leaving Daniel DeWilde the only person on trial. Without forensic evidence, the whole case rides on David's testimony. 
And when David finally took the stand, Jefferson County Assistant DA Robert Weiner begins questioning him for this date. You saw him look at his brother? Yeah. And you're wondering, oh my gosh, will he lose his nerve? Uh, That's exactly what I was thinking. And then I asked him who killed Heather. And what did David say? He pointed to his brother. The defense had a different theory about who killed Heather. In fact, they claim their client Daniel is completely innocent. Here's Daniel's defense attorney, Tom Ward. David, by his own admission, uh, is responsible for getting rid of the car. He's responsible for getting rid of the body. All of those things are very hard to believe that someone would do if they weren't the perpetrator. They put the blame entirely on David. They say Daniel had nothing to do with Heather's death. But there's still the question, what would be the motive for David to kill his brother's wife? David DeWild uh, says that he always felt that Heather was attracted to him, that there was a possibility that after Dan and Heather's divorce was final, that he and Heather would be able to get together. There's no other evidence of any of this besides uh, what David DeWild says about it. So I question whether he had some sort of an obsession with Heather. And he killed her because she wouldn't respond to him. It's possible. Assistant DA Robert Weiner thought the theory was absurd. I don't think there's any way David could have done it by himself. And looking at the dynamics, it became pretty clear that uh, David was set up by Daniel. Um, Daniel is the controlling one. David wasn't going to lose his house. Daniel was losing his house. David had absolutely no motive, none whatsoever, to, to kill Heather. Weiner hoped to grill Daniel, but Daniel, as a defendant, is not required to testify, and he didn't take the stand. So the jury is left with a real dilemma. Who killed Heather? And who is telling the truth? Two brothers who look incredibly alike, one accusing the other of murder. When the defense finished, there, though closing, what were you feeling? They, you know, there's a possibility. They argued to the jury, this was all David, not Dan. And even if the jury didn't believe it was all David, it could add up to reasonable doubt. What were you feeling? Um... I was feeling three, four years of work and that at some point there had to be justice for Heather, that this is ridiculous, that there is absolutely no way, no way that Daniel wasn't part of this murder. None. Um, Not to mention beyond a reasonable doubt. That, to me, was beyond any doubt. But as every prosecutor has learned, you never quite know what 12 people behind closed doors will decide. Twelve of us coming here, we're getting along just fine. Then once we had to dig into the evidence, things changed dramatically. Because the nature of the case was so circumstantial and there wasn't any real hard physical evidence, you spend your time trying to piece it together. And we went backwards, we went forward, and then we started putting it up on the walls, surrounding ourselves with it. It was really difficult. People were emotional. People were getting on one another's nerves. We took a poll, you know, six and six. And where do we go from there? How do we bridge that gap? 
That's coming up in part two of Twisted Twins, Who Killed Heather DeWild? I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and that's my life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio and Paramount. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours Executive Producer. Megan Marcus is Vice President for Podcast Editorial at Paramount. Production and editing for this season by Caroline Casey, Annie Cronenberg, Danny Levy, Megan Marcus, Kiara Norbitz, and Alan Pang. This episode was also produced by Lisa Freed and Mike McHugh of 48 Hours. And finally, a thank you to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on X, and we're at 48 Hours on X, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.